Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Um, I hope you enjoyed our opening music. It's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore. And you can download it on any of your favorite music platforms if you'd like. For those of you that are new to our show, we're about sound music or sound music, sound news, not just sound bites. Our goal is to raise voices big and small all around the world from those diagnosed to those who care and serve them, to advocates and researchers, and so much more. And today is a live show, and so feel free to call in and join the conversation. We only ask that our tone stay respectful and on topic, and that number is 323 and as usual, I love thanking our listeners. You guys are so loyal. I appreciate your willingness to help us build our brand and a sense of community here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. We think it's so important to bring comfort and hope and solid information to people. So I hope you continue to like, click, and share our content. Um, Today's conversation, we're going to be talking about duty of care versus dignity of risk. But before I introduce you to our guest today, I always love to give a couple of shout outs. Um, So I want to give a shout out to um, MDVIP, who's put together a wonderful brain health IQ survey that you can take. And you can visit alzheimerspeaks.com and find that there. Um, There's also another survey that was put together by a student, um, Chantel Horn, in New Zealand, and that one's about caregiver burnout. It's a dementia caregiver burnout survey. And again, you can find that on our homepage along with the HQ uh, or the Brain Health uh, IQ uh, quiz. And let's see, Music uh, First and Choral Health uh, are still, uh, um, I am just tripping on my words today. I got to tell you, I was really sick over the weekend, and I am just still bouncing back, so I have to apologize. (laughs) Uh, Choral Health is still doing amazing work and allowing people to download Music First and Choral Faith. Uh, from their website. You can just go to coral, C-O-R-O, com to download both of those apps for free. And then, of course, there is the Memory Cafe directory where you can find out where there are virtual cafes up and coming. Um, and again, you, you don't have to be in the area to join one of those cafes. So just go to memorycafedirectory.com. And then I've been working with Artist Senior Living in Woodbury, and they started uh, just uh, this month the Artist Way Memory Cafe, which is going to be held virtually um, every third Wednesday of the month. So the next one is October 21st. And again, you can find information um, on that by going to alzheimerspeaks.com. So Before I shuffle off here, um, I do want to give a shout out just to um, some of our um, recent shows. Again, we had one on brain health. We had an open mic, which was a lot of fun. And then we um, did two on an audio play called 
the forget, forgiving and forgetting. One was a 90-minute play. Uh, the other one had the cast. Uh, so you can find those on um, just on our on our homepage. Just scroll down. And then some of our upcoming shows, we're going to have one on estate planning, um, emergency protocols. We're going to have Maria's Place back with us. And so you can look forward to those. Maria's uh, place is full of wonderful, wonderful activities. Last I want to do is just give Footbar Walker just a moment to tell us a little bit about them. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Footbar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the footbar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Footbar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. Well, welcome back, everyone. We are finally going to introduce our guest today. We are lucky to have Erica Botner with us, who is a recreation therapist and an entrepreneur with more than 20 years of leadership experience in clinical, community, and academic settings. What a nice blend. Um, she has a history of providing person-centered and strengths-based and compassionate care. Erica is committed to changing the narrative of disability, aging, and dementia through direct service training workshops, which facilitate optimal um, living and and, um, aging for her participants. So welcome, Erica. How are you doing today? Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm doing great. Wonderful. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, I'm really intrigued with what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, But first, I want to ask, I I try to ask uh, all of my um, guests if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. So, um, yes, I have actually. A lot of the women in my family um, have been diagnosed with dementia, and uh, most recently my mom just got a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, which does not necessarily mean it will become dementia, but is often, you know, one of one of the first signs. Yep. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but it sounds like you're taking everything in good stride. My mom had dementia for 30 years, so um, I get that, and it's uh, it's scary when you when you think about. Is it a gene thing? Is it environmental? And, you know, there's so many unknowns in this process. Um, And it's definitely different different when it's in your own family, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's for sure. So it's always easy to give advice. And then when it hits home, um, and people in healthcare say that all the time, how did I miss these signs? I know better. (laughs) You know, I would have spotted them anywhere else, you know, but it's just that that normal process and it's the family dynamics and um, the emotions of it all that, uh, that make it different. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you started offering these back um, backyard camps and, and, you know, what are they like? Sure. Yeah. So um, like you said before, I'm a recreation therapist. Um, I teach at the local university and during COVID, um, like many other people, I was laid off temporarily. Um, and I saw the impact that COVID-19 was having on the older adults and specifically people with dementia in our community. You know, I really saw, uh, you know, people who were, who were socially isolated. I saw people who were, you know, lacking stimulation and were even declining because of it. And I saw it in my own mom, Right. Like I noticed that she had had a couple of falls and it was because she was, you know, she wasn't being active. 
enough. Um, and I thought, okay, well, you know, I've got this free time now. Um, what can I do that will make a meaningful difference to the older adults with dementia um, in my community? And so a trend started, I'm, I'm in Montreal, Canada, um, and a trend started here where people started offering backyard summer camps for kids. Um, so a way to get kids together and active you know, during the summer, during COVID. And I was like, why can't we do this for older adults? All of the programs and services had shut down. There was nothing being offered in person. People were getting tired of online, um, if they even had access to online. And I was like, why can't we be outside, you know, two feet apart with all of the PPEs and proper measures, and people can actually have some human contact, Right. So I started, you know, I kind of put the idea out there and there were there were a significant number of people interested. And I I contacted some students at Concordia that I teach, some recent grads as well, and they were willing to facilitate these experiences. And we created a, a couple of um, opportunities throughout the week for people to come and meet either in someone's backyard or in a local park and do physical activity, do cognitive stimulation, play games, uh, music, creative expression, and just give people a reason to wake up in the morning and something to look forward to. Um, so that's that's how the backyard camps started. Unfortunately, they're over now because of the weather um, in Canada. So we're we're in fall and it's starting to get cold. Um, and also we're in a second. Um, we're in what's considered a red zone wave two is happening. And so we're being asked to limit contact again for the next 28 days. It's uh, I think fall is really going to be hard in winter because when people were at least yeah. able to get outside, uh, you know, it made such a big, big difference. I'm in Minnesota. So again, it's in the, right now it's in the fifties. Here, I think that's I, I believe that's what it is. I, I haven't been mm-hmm. today or really looked, but that's what they were talking. We were going to kind of go into this this cold uh, cold mode again, and you know I don't know how how people are going to hold on without having that social contact. It's so vitally important. I know there's been a lot done through the virtual contact, but just being able to get out and physically move and see people and interact um, in a safe manner um, is really, is really, really a tough, tough thing. Um, I want to ask you, you know, what would have been some of the challenges for people with dementia during COVID and what types of things do you recommend to help them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't really like to focus too much on the challenges because it doesn't necessarily help to move things forward, but we do need to acknowledge them, I think, and to start thinking of solutions, right? And clearly, COVID has had a devastating impact on the well-being of many older adults with dementia, Um, their families and even the staff members that work with them. Um, Here, they've called it a public health crisis, but I think it's also been a humanitarian crisis um and you know i think the the yeah there's been a lot of challenges whether you live at home in the community or whether you live in a long-term care facility um you know like i said before there's the social isolation and the loneliness which they actually say is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day you know which is which is huge it has huge effects on social emotional and physical health right uh, we need human contact, and and older adults were told not to don't visit your kids, don't visit your grandkids, stay inside, right? Um, and I think you know, talking about old, we're focusing on older adults with dementia, but one of the things that happened at least here in Montreal is they made a blanket statement that everyone over the age of 65 should self isolate, and not everyone over the age of 65 is in the same situation. We have some 65-year-olds who are healthy and vibrant and active, you know, who who really felt like, you know, they could see their grandkids in a safe way, right? Not everyone is in the same, you know, precarious situation um, that puts them at higher risk. Other challenges are, you know, lack of stimulation, right? So just by not being active physically, cognitively, socially, we lose mobility, we lose cognition, 
Um, you know, I've heard people say things like, like my mom is a shell of who they were before COVID, you know, and, you know, people saying I've literally done nothing for the last six months. Right. Um, And then also, I think we've also seen some ageism, right. And, and older lives devalued in different ways too, you know, with decisions about, I know, you know, at the beginning when, when we didn't know what was going to happen with COVID and all we had was the example of what was happening in Italy and they were having to make decisions about, you know, the ICU beds are full and there's not enough ventilators and they had to start making decisions about who would get it, right? And they, they decided anyone over the age of 65 would have less priority of somebody under the age of 65. So, like, you know, these are hard decisions to make. I don't judge anybody or any government or any, you know, that has to make these decisions. But I just think that that we did. And, and it's not just ageism because of COVID. I think COVID shone a light into a society that already devalues um, aging, right? Well, and yeah, so, I think that's, I think that's very true. And, um, and yet I, I was shocked you know, to hear some of those decisions had to be made and were being made. I just, even though you kind of knew out there on some level, it was something I didn't really want to accept, you know, myself um, to really believe. It's like, how could that be? Yeah. I mean, I can't even put words to it either. Right. Like just the thought, I wouldn't want to be in the situation of having to make, you know, make that kind of decision. Yeah, that's for sure. But very, I think what we need, to, you know, what what we need to remember. I saw this article um, in the Huff Post that was written by a woman who is 90 years old. Her name is Varda Yoran, um, and she says, "I'm not disposable, and I'm saddened that there are people who think age dictates whether a human life is worth saving. Senior citizens are productive and contribute to the world. Bring it to, they bring their added dimension of age and experience." I think no limit should be set on when a person's life is no longer valuable. As long as I'm still creative, as long as I still enjoy life, nobody can write me off, you know, and COVID is a special situation, you know, like I, you know, that's uh, certain decisions were made. Right. But I think it highlighted the fact that, that this is a longstanding issue. (laughs) We have devalued older adults and especially people with dementia for a long time. Well, and I think it's bringing out we've devalued a lot of people. You know, we've devalued um, the people who care for people who need assistance. You know, um, so many everyday jobs that people just took for granted that are vital to keeping us functional, Um, you know, as a society. uh, it's, It's just amazing how... You know, how that has taken place and how we have lost appreciation for one another. And I think uh, I think in a lot of ways, um, it's it's a good thing. It's brought to light. It's made people appreciate more, be more grateful, Mm -hmm. um, want change, want more um, evening out of of what's Mm -hmm. going on. And and so I think it's uh, you know no matter what's going on in the world right now is as scary as it might seem and as bad as it might seem um, there are a lot of good things coming out of it and you can't fix what's broken if you don't recognize what's wrong you know mm-hmm. um, and then bringing people from all different aspects together to really get a true picture of of how to change. One of the things you talk about is, you know, the duty of care versus the dignity of a risk. And this is a really, I think a big, big point that is missed by many <laughs> and misunderstood. And then um, I want you to talk about this and it looks like we've got a couple of callers on the line that I, that I'd like mm-hmm. to pull in um, sure. after we discuss this. Sure. Um, yeah, so really, I mean, when we're talking about duty of care versus dignity of risk, I'm really thinking of safety versus joy, right? Mm-hmm. And safety is so important, hugely important, right? We need to keep people safe. Uh, but it can't be the only consideration because by, by if our only focus is on keeping people safe, we're limiting their opportunities 
for meaningful experiences and joy and quality of life. Um, mm-hmm. We had a, a conference here, a virtual conference a couple of weeks ago, and Dr. Pat Armstrong, who has done um, some research, some international research on promising practices in long-term care, she said a life without risk wouldn't really be much fun at all. I'm not even sure if it would be considered living, right? And she gave an example of um, a long-term care facility that that served mostly um, people of Asian descent that decided that they would no longer serve soy sauce because it had too much sodium, right? (laughs) Yet soy sauce, you know, bring, yes, okay, so sodium does have health risks for sure, but these people are near the end of their life and it brings them a lot of joy, right? So it's, you know, it's, that's just one small example, but I feel like, you know, every day there's, we always have to balance this, this, this delicate balance of safety versus joy. Oh, that's so funny you say that because my mom was in a, in a nursing home for 14 years. She lived for 30 years with the disease and, um, it, and she was overweight, and so every care conference <clears throat> we'd go over, and they're like, you know, we know your mom really likes Dr. Pepper, <laughs> but is mm-hmm. there any any way you can bring diet Dr. Pepper? And I just said no. Yeah. And they're and they're like, well, you know, it's kind of a health thing. And I said, I don't care. She doesn't care what's going to take her out at this point. Let her right. have the Dr. Pepper. She can tell the she can tell the difference, and she would sing the yeah. the Pepper song, and I mean, she would just bring back these memories and stuff. And she knew the difference. And I think sometimes we try to fool people with imitation mm-hmm. stuff, thinking mm-hmm. that we that we know better. And you know, it's kind of like uh, if someone is gonna have a cigarette, you know. It, at that point, if it's going to bring them comfort, I mean, they, they do have some, in my belief, they do have the right to some choice. Um, as long as it's done safely, it's not harming anybody else. Um, right. I had a, a friend in Australia, uh, Colin, and he, he, uh, he has this brilliant video, I don't know if you've ever seen it, where they had one of their residents at, I want to say 89 years old, jump out of a plane because he wanted to, he wanted <laughs> wow. to, he wanted to jump out of a plane one more time. And it was a tandem jump. Um, but they, they fought literally with the family for his right to be able to jump. Mm-hmm. And so this video shows, um, Shows them jumping, you know, and you see his cheeks flapping, you know, as he's going through the wind. And, yeah. uh, the, you know, the care people were, you, you had to be away from the landing point. And they said they, they saw him drop and then he just laid on the ground. And Colin thought, oh, my God, if he's dead, the family's going to kill me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he, he ran up there, he said, as fast as he could. And he was still just laying still. And he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's like, I'm just reveling in the moment. Oh, it was like the best, one of his best moments. Yep. Yeah. Because he was, he was a, I, you know, he was a jumper in the, in the army and, or yeah. the air force, not in the army. Um, and it was just this, he said it was just this most beautiful moment in the, the smile on his face. And I mean, I can still, I'm getting teary on yeah. just, just visualizing him, you know, watching this video, the power yeah. of it, and to withhold that from somebody is, in my opinion, just not right. It's just not right. Because yeah. life... And so what, you know, mm-hmm. I was just going to say, and so what's, what is the goal of it all? Is it to prolong life as long as possible, or is it to actually live Yep. Right. With, with, and look, there's, you cannot live without some kind of risk, right? Like there's an element of risk, even like no matter how well you've planned something, right? <laughs> there's an element of risk in every single thing. So to me, it comes down to like, is our goal to prolong life as long as possible? You know, duty of care, take no risks, do no harm, 
you know, or is it to, is it to embrace living, put living first? Well, exactly, and especially when COVID has brought out this thing of, you know, we have to weigh out who's going to get what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, then let people live fully. You know, and mm-hmm. and um, I I just uh, I feel really strongly about that, but that's that's me. Now, let me let me pull in one of the callers here. <clears throat> I believe sure. this is I believe this is Kate Lau. Let me see here. Um, Kate, I believe you are live and on the air. Yes, I'm alive. And Janice, are you there? I didn't pull her in yet. I thought we'd talk to you oh, one at a time okay. so we don't talk over too well, much. Right, because uh, Janice has a teleconference shortly, so I will just let her uh, oh, go first. Okay. okay, let me pull yeah. then. Janice, you are live and on the air. <laughs> Hi, welcome. Well, hey there. Hi. Hi. Thank you Thank for having you. me. This is really, really great. I, I have had the pleasure and honor of meeting Lori and uh, mm. such great work you're doing. And, of course, Kate is my dear friend and my sister and love her so much. Um, I wanted to ask, um, or I don't know if you all um, discussed this or not, you were talking about some of the benefits and one of the other callers mentioned that they're in the red zone with the COVID. And, and one of the um, research studies that um, I happened to um, review recently, um, they had said the upside, and forgive me if you've already said this, but the upside of people with early dementia during this time of the COVID-19 is that they're not aware that the pandemic has set in, so they're not depressed like other people. So it's because on one hand, you know, they have to be careful and they don't have the the resources like they would normally have when it comes to care and caregivers and things like that and being able to get into the doctor's office at a certain period of time. But the other thing they pointed out was that they noticed, they're doing more research on it, but they noticed that um, I think they looked at, um, I want to say, I know it was the minimum, I think it was 20,000 cases, that they found that their depression was not as bad because they were not aware of it. And when they were aware of it, they wouldn't remember the next day. And so, they, you know, they would go on with life and, and do whatever they normally would do. And because they weren't thinking about the COVID, they weren't thinking about, you know, why is everybody wearing masks and I can't go to this restaurant. They just didn't think about that. So I thought that was really interesting. Do you remember hmm. what setting that was in? That the what population? Uh, let me um, let me try to pull it up again, and okay. um, because I should have it saved on my bookmarks, um, and I'll let you know. Um, so the, the reason I'm oh. asking, and and uh-huh. um, and then I'll ask um, Erica for her thoughts. But what I have seen is, you know, people with dementia that are still able to function on the computers and things like that. Um, when COVID hit, it, their life didn't slow down. They had already adapted to the isolation mm-hmm. and to working remotely. And so they kind of felt ahead of the curve and really were helping others adapt to using Zoom and things like that. But people in communities um, such as memory care and things, um, what I've been hearing from people, and again, I'm no researcher, but what I was hearing from people living in a community were they did fine up till about two to three months, and it was right between that two to three month mark where all of a sudden it wasn't fine, and they saw a huge decline in people. And then there's the people at home that I'm thinking maybe they didn't get as depressed because they still were at home and able to, you know, maneuver around a little bit, a little bit more. But I, I think, uh, I mean, I think there was still the scare there, but I'll let, we'll let Kate kind of talk, but it would be interesting with that study. Um, if you can mm-hmm. pull that up, um, Erica, any thoughts? Um, yeah. What I mean, that's, that's, yeah, it's really interesting. It, at first, it surprised me a little bit, um, but if I think about it a little bit more, I guess it just really depends on the person's situation, the level of so- social support that they have in this stage of disease. 
that they're at. Um, you know, definitely some people with dementia are at a stage where they're really just living in the moment, right? So as you said, you know, they might, it might impact them one day because they don't, you know, they have to put a mask on to go into a store, but the next day they don't remember. That said, um, you know, the people that I've worked with, it's been a bit of a different story. Um, I work with a lot of people who used to attend day programs during the week. So they would have a place to go, spend the day there, do all of their stimulating and therapeutic recreation activities, and then go home. And the loss of that was huge for, for the participants in terms of, you know, just they lost their, their friendship group. They lost that sense of belonging of somewhere to go where they're, you know, expected and wanted. Um, they lost all of the stimulating activities. They lost their friends. Um, but it had an even bigger impact on their caregivers because they yeah. lost access to respite, <laughs> right? Yeah. They would have a day off when, you know, um, when, when their loved, the person they were caring for would go, you know, to a program, they would have a day off and they lost that. So th- that, that's the biggest impact that I've really seen. I can definitely see that some, you know, some people who have the support that they need and the family to help, and, you know, um, they're getting by really well, and some people are really resilient. But there, I think there's a, there's a lot of people with dementia and their family members and caregivers that are struggling as well. Yeah, yeah. Janice, were you able to pull that up at all? I was able to pull up one, which I sent to Kate. Um, I texted that to her. That was one. I haven't found the one that um, I'm still <laughs> looking for, the one that I, I, I saw yesterday. Um, but this one is exactly what um, the caller just talked about, where the depression was increased and anxiety was increased for caregivers and mm-hmm. for um, spouses who um, had um, their partner was um, just diagnosed um, during mm-hmm. this time, during the COVID. But um, as soon as I find that, um, Lori, I'll let you know or I'll send it to you and Kate. Um, okay. If I sent the link for one of them, and then um, while we're listening to the call, I'll look for the other one so we so you can keep the conversation going. I'll let you know. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'm going to go okay. ahead and, and pull Kate in here and get some of her thoughts. How are you doing, Kate? I'm doing good. I'm hmm. just listening, and uh, um, I am so amazed by all the information. I have nothing to say. I'm just totally like listening. I'm tuned into this and I'm like, whoa, these guys know what they're talking about and I don't. Oh, I, I think, you um, know, when it, when it comes to this, it, everyone is learning. Well, um, and so for you, I, I want to get back to kind of that, that duty of care, that safety issue versus risk of, of dignity and joy. What are your feelings about having the right to do something that might not be safe but might just make you really happy? Well, you know, as a parent and as a, and as a patient and as a caregiver for dementia patients before I was diagnosed, um, I see it in like three dimensions. <laughs> Um, it is like, okay, uh, I see my kids or grandkids. Uh, they want to, suppose they want to jump off something, and I say, well, okay, be careful. You might mm-hmm. get hurt. But um, they want to do it so bad. Please, Nana, can I do it? I say, you might get hurt, but I'll let them. I'm watching, but I'll let them because they want to do it so bad, um, it's my duty to watch them, but I still want to give them the dignity of choice to to jump or to do whatever it is that they want to do or to go on the slide, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. that, 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 that's their right. That's their dignity, okay. Um, and then when they do it, and there's so much joy that comes out of it, right? Then what do you get? They, there's yep. so much love and there's so much freedom and there's, you know, but it's my duty and I give them the dignity to do it. 
So actually, mm-hmm. you know, you can't separate the two. They have to. They, you have to work with those two, hand in hand, even in caregiving. Uh huh. Yeah, it, I, I think of my my little granddaughter when she gets hurt. Oh, I mean, she's she's like a little tomboy, but it, you know, give her a band aid, takes away those tears, and she just you know she wears them as badges of honor, and she's right back yeah. at it again. Right. You know? Um. And. And I think you know that's kind of how we we live. You know, we learn we learn yes. that way. Um, but you know, there there are some things you know, like food choices and and things where you know it's it might not be a good dietary choice because of you know whatever. Um, but is that is that a value at that point in the disease? You know, or would you rather just eat what you want to eat? Well, you know, um, well, if a person, if if a, if a, a, a patient says that I do not want to drink this thickened, horrible coffee that tastes like gasoline, and it didn't taste mm-hmm. like gasoline, okay? <laughs> I'm sure it didn't. It's worse, maybe, or and. Uh, we don't want the patient to choke, okay? Yep. So I will say, all right, uh, you sure? Yes. So uh, would you want to eat something? So we'll give pureed food, mm-hmm. different approach. But she eats something. Um, but that is my duty to make sure that my patient eats something, I think. Um, and uh, it's giving her some dignity to say that she does not want to eat that nasty, drink that nasty, taken coffee. <laughs> she can say no. Yep. You know what yep. I mean? Yeah. So, so where where does one end and where does one begin? Yeah. You know, there's but then so, there's I, also. Pardon me. Oh, I was just going to say there's so many daily choices about that from, you know, we're starting to see some of that in the the care culture in long-term care. And is that rolling over to home? Sometimes I don't think so when I I talk with some of the care partners, you know, where they're saying, okay, somebody doesn't want to go to bed at, at the time they used to go to bed. Uh, somebody wants to sleep in longer. Somebody doesn't want to take a shower every single day. Um, or mornings or evenings are better for them. And there, you know, communities have found, you know, many of them that it's, it's easier to change and, and go with their new normal instead of making them follow a routine. And I know sometimes when I talk with families, they're like, but we follow a routine. And, and I'll never forget Harry Urban's comment, who's living with dementia, and he says, but whose routine is it? It's not ours, (laughs) you know. We're the one with a cognitive decline, so we need to follow the person with dementia's routine and try to honor and respect that as much as possible. Erica, what do you see about culture change in in long-term care and and the impact as as a whole? Oh, gosh. That's a huge. That's a huge question. <laughs> um, but I think I think it is. You know, just going back um, to the conversation quickly, and I'll lead that into into my answer. You know, there it's because you asked when does one end and when does one begin, and I don't think there's a. I don't yes. think it's black and white, right? No. I think it depends no. on so many factors, including including that individual's desires and beliefs, and that family's desires and beliefs in the context in which they, they live. But I think providing as much choice as possible and is appropriate for the situation um, is a good way in starting. You know, I remember once walking in, I ran a day program um, for people living with dementia. And I remember walking in one day and all 15 of them were standing up dancing <laughs> with one <laughs> facilitator. And at first my heart dropped and I was like, someone's going to fall, right? Because I was a manager and that's where my head went at the time. And then I took a step back and I was like, I I was like, look at everybody's faces. Look how much fun they're having. Look how connected they all are, you know? And what that led me to do 
was to ask the families during the intake and during the initial assessment how much risk they were willing to take, right? Mm -hmm. I would ask the question, if, you know, if we're going to, everyone's going to stand up and dance, do you want your loved one to stand up and dance too, right? Or I would ask, they're able to make, you know, their own decisions too, I would ask them, do you want to be able to stand up and dance, even if there's a little risk of falling? We'll take all the precautions we can, you know, there'll be chairs nearby and that you can grab onto, but would you rather get up and dance or would you rather sit down in the chair and watch? You know, and we tried to honor those wishes as much as possible. And I think if we're talking about culture change in long-term care, you know, I think the first thing is, is moving from a medical model where, where it's all about health and, and staying alive to, to a social model where it's about living, right? And living equals making as many choices as you can for yourself, right? And creating a home-like environment where you feel like, you, you feel like you're at home. A lot of culture change uh, models talk about smaller, more home-like um, living environments that are connected to communities um, where older adults and people living with dementia can flourish and prosper, not just survive, right? Um, the culture change movement talks about a place where people are proud to live and work and, and relationships that are based on dignity and respect. And I love hearing, you know, instead of talking about like a caregiver and a care recipient, um, I love talking about the idea of care partners, Right. Mm -hmm. So where everybody, including, you know, the older adult, the 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 family members, the people who work on the front lines, the housekeepers, the the people providing the recreation, the people cooking the meals, all of these people are integral members of a long term care facility and need to be connected in a relationship based on dignity and respect. You know, and then the other big item related to um, long-term care facilities is that decision making has to be not hierarchical it can't be you know these top ceos i don't know what the situation is like in like where you are but in canada we have a lot of for-profit long-term care facilities and a lot of you know people at the top who are making all these decisions that affect everyone you know down below which makes people, you know, the, the, the older adults feel devalued, the people that work with older adults feel devalued. And so that model needs to shift to be less hierarchical, you know. Those are some of the things that come to my mind when I think of culture change in long-term care. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen um, a, a video or read any information on the butterfly model? Yeah, I, I, I definitely have. I've been to a conference where I've heard a presentation about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable because it hits all of those things about you know healthy living and staying alive or or being social and actually being alive, you know it's home like yeah. it's smaller environments. Um, people are really proud to engage. They they analyze that risk of of joy um, or mm -hmm. not having it and the the whole dignity and they um, don't even call um, their um, their clients, they're not residents, they're family members. They consider themselves all family members. The staff wear pajamas at night, so it triggers them to see it's nighttime, you know, versus, you know, them up and around. Well, if they're up and around, I should still be up and around. Why am I going to bed? <laughs> you know, they're, mm -hmm. still, they're still here. So working on a really different, different basis. And um, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, my gosh, this one, because the, you know, the the colors and things were really bright and things looked really cluttered. And that went against everything that I believed before. And then it was, but it was bright and it was fun and they enjoyed their environment. And there was a lot of stuff out, but it was, it was the resident stuff. So that they could touch mm -hmm. and feel, but it was it was out in the open for everyone to share. And you know, there was no staff bathrooms. There was no really staff breaks. You know, and I mean, we couldn't get by with that here in the U.S. The way we, you know, the way we're structured. Um, their dementia training 
was um, wasn't the normal dementia training. It was vulnerability training, and, and staff had to sit down and say, "What what are they vulnerable about?" And they had to break open to the other staff that they're dealing with in order wow. to be part of that family. I mean, it was really powerful, but the their staff retention was much higher. Um, they said, this is my second family. You know, I, I come here on my day off because I just want to. Mm-hmm. You know, those beautiful. are things you don't, don't hear a lot um, on there. Um, I'm just going to pop back to Janice and see if uh, see if she's still there and uh, if she <laughs> might have found that article or I not. Am. I am, and I was on my phone when I was looking for it again, trying to look through my history, and I don't know, I don't know where it went, but um, I'll continue to look for it even after the call. And um, when and if I find it, I'll just I'll just email it to you um, if I don't find it here in the next fifteen minutes. Okay, not a problem. Not a yeah, problem. Sorry about that. Well, that's okay, um, Kate. I'm gonna pull you back in and see uh, yes. see if you have any comments to what we just discussed. Yes. Yes. Um, I have a comment about uh, duty and obligation. I come from mm-hmm. a country and I'm, um, where there's a three-generational family, uh, you know, living in the same house or, you know, we're scattered in another house that's three-generational. It doesn't matter if a niece stays with an uncle and a grandmother or grandmother and son and, you know, it doesn't matter. But anyway, um, uh, in the Western world, I don't know if they look at us and say, how could they do this, you know? <laughs> this is craziness, you know, there's so little space. Well, let's call the authorities because the kids cannot stay like this <laughs> with their grandmothers, the grandfathers and all of that, you know? This is wrong. But, you know... <laughs> It is family, and and uh, the older I get, the 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 more um, um, how do you I notice my progression, and I miss my family, and I miss, mm-hmm. I miss the care I would get if I were at home, because every now and then my nephew would text me and say, you know, my sister is not well. And, uh, you know, my niece is taking her to chemotherapy or this and that. And tomorrow, so-and-so will go and cook for her. And I went like, oh, gosh, how nice. You know, and uh, I don't get any of this. So mm-hmm. it's their duty to do it. Because my husband always feels like my husband is from Bolingbroke or something. I don't even know, Illinois. And he he says that, wow, you know, you guys are made because of this and that. But don't you feel like kind of claustrophobic to so many people that say, no, it's family. So um, I, I just feel like, no, it's not duty. He always thinks that, well, my, my son's the oldest. So it's my son's duty to provide for everything for me. No. Mm-hmm. It is not, not anymore, maybe during uh, my great-great-grandfather's time. Um, And it is not an obligation. My son would send me things, would send me air tickets or whatever. It's it's not out of duty or obligation. It's out of love. Okay. And and as our parents um, get older... They require more care, and uh, the faith of uh, of uh, worsening physical and mental deterioration is more stark. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, um, they don't talk to me about it. I wonder if they talk to each other about it. Mm-hmm. But um, in my husband's family, they just do not zero talk about their dad who had a heart attack uh, 
three times last year, mm-hmm. who had uh, other, you know, cancer and inflammation. No talk about that. So I was thinking, uh-huh. so who is going to take care of him? Me? Okay, fine. But back home, there'll be a host of relatives, families, in-laws. This, my sister-in-law would be like running all over the place doing, you know, there's so much of that. And I heard who was talking about um, uh, family care and such a little while ago mm-hmm. and, and pajamas and stuff. That's just care. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's more happy and it's long-term. And I don't see a loss of dignity. Grandma is still grandma, you know. Hmm. And we had a lot of laughter. And grandma laughs with us. Because she still recognizes some of us, maybe. God knows what, who she thought I was, you know. My dad thought that I was a watermelon a lot of time. And he gets so mad because he couldn't say my name. But still, there is love. We're all surrounded by love. And uh, my son wants me to go home and visit. But he doesn't want to go with me. He says that he wants to see if I can do it. Because my mom's very strong. My mom can do it. My mom ran away two years ago. She took a student bus from University of Illinois, went to an STD conference in Chicago. Nobody knew until she came back at midnight. Okay, but (laughs) Malaysia (laughs) is quite far away, Chris. (laughs) I'll put you on the direct flight. I said, oh, dear, I don't think so. I don't think so. Not anymore. Um, it's interesting. Um, it really I don't, is. I don't remember. I don't remember, honestly, I don't remember care in a nursing facility back home because it's been a long time. But when I was mm-hmm. there, I remember visiting nursing facilities and there's a lot of sitting outdoors with old people, nurses uh-huh. sitting outdoors. Yeah enjoying the sunshine or whatever, and talking. And I don't yeah. remember passing a lot of medication around an indoor thing. That's all I can say. Okay. Well, thank, well, I appreciate you adding to the conversation, Kate. I'm gonna, I want to ask uh, um, Erica one question because I can't believe our hour is almost up here. And that, <laughs> and that is, um, if you can, because not all of our audience probably knows what the role of of a, a recreation a therapist is. Oh, sure. So, a recreation recreation therapy is an allied health professional, like occupational therapy, physiotherapy, social work. But the intervention that we use is recreation and leisure and meaningful activities. Um, so if you think about what recreation and leisure is, it's really about freely chosen activities that bring you, that bring you joy, right? What do you Mm -hmm. do in your free time that makes you feel good? Now, certainly as we get older and, you know, if we, if we have a diagnosis of dementia, we start to experience barriers to these activities. So a recreation therapist will help to adapt the activities so that you can continue doing them or help you choose other activities that will fill the same need, you know, and, and still be meaningful and, and purposeful. And so if, if we're looking at leisure as one area where people still have the opportunity to choose and make choices about how they spend their time, and it can be intrinsically motivating, then I think it also has a vital role to play in changing the culture of aging, dementia, and how care and provide services for older adults. And I love that, that this idea of care came up um, before because, you know, we're talking about changing the culture of long-term care, but I think it's about changing the culture of care and how we care for each other, whether it's within families. And I know that has decreed over the decades um, with families moving across the country, you know, and, and living far away. Um, how we care for people who still want to stay living at home for as long as possible, in addition to to things around long-term care. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, my tagline is shifting dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just, That's you know, great. my mom's 
my mom's been gone six years um, and lived with the disease for 30. And I was just shocked how disconnected we all were and how voices of those with dementia wasn't being raised and how families weren't really being communicated with. They were being communicated at um, and they only given certain pieces um, that people thought would suit them best. And we weren't even allowing families to make choices, let alone people with dementia. And so we've come a long, long ways in the 10 years I've been in this space. But it's still, when you look at where we have to go, it's a baby step. Um, mm-hmm. Same with the disease has been around 100 years, and we are we are still at the baby step stage of even knowing about the various types of dementia and, and how to suit it. And I think one of the best ways that we can increase our response to get supportive services to people is to talk to people at all levels. And um, realize that everybody's opinion counts, their insights matter, and they're important. Because, you know, once we really take in that, you know, there's a saying out there, once you've seen one person with dementia, you've seen one. But we have to live and breathe that. Because we're still Mm -hmm. trying to put people in boxes, going, well, you're supposed to be like this. (laughs) Well, you know, sorry, (laughs) my diagnosis isn't progressing like that, you know, and I mean, some of these people living with the disease, um, and, and, and Kate uh, knows this very well, um, you know, they get bullied because they're not progressing fast enough because somebody else's husband or spouse isn't able to do that anymore. So you must be faking it. I mean, there's so many levels of culture change wow. that, that need to change. Um, the use of, usage of our words, even from caregiver to care partner, care companion, make a difference in how we perceive things. Um, Building the team, like you had mentioned, that everybody in every position has a piece. They have a voice. They have an effect in terms of care in a a community and in a society. And I think we really, um, I I think our society as a whole has, um, through the pandemic, has uh, brought up um, to a lot of people that, hey, maybe living together um, with family isn't so bad. You know, where yeah. uh, Kate was talking earlier, I I, um, I have a house and my daughter and her husband and their two kids and actually um, hmm. Steve's dad live with me. And people go, well, that's really weird. And I'm like, you know, it's really nice. We all get along. Everybody's, there's plenty of space. You know, everybody's got their privacy. Um, this doesn't have to be an awful thing. Um, yeah. it, it can be a thing you do together because you want to, um, not because and it's it a burden. Even, yeah, and it doesn't, yeah, exactly. It's not a duty or an obligation, but it doesn't even have to be within families too. There's a trend now for for intergenerational living opportunities not within families. So like an older couple might bring in, you know, a young single mom and her child and, and they will live together and create a little community and help each other out and support each other, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. Well, we only have about uh, 90 seconds left. So I want to make sure that we get your, get your information to people. Uh, sure. Erica, uh, contact information uh, is her, um, well, why don't you go ahead and give it? You can probably say it better and quicker oh. than I can. Sure, sure. So I have a website. It's www.recreotherapy.com. And my email address is Erica, E-R-I-C-A, at recreotherapy.com. And recreotherapy is R-E-C-R-E-O-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate uh, the time you spent with us today in uh, sharing the work that you're doing and, you know, continuing trying to to shift care culture. And I just want to, again, thank Kate and Janice both for calling in. Appreciate you both both spending time with us. So thank you so much. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Great. And for our listeners, I just want to, again, thank you both. 
or thank you both. I think there's probably more than two of you out there. <laughs> like I said, I am getting over being sick. Um, but thank you all, and I appreciate your likes, clicks, and shares. We'll see you soon. Bye now. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.